Our Father, we often hear the phrase that the devil is in the details, but nothing could be more untrue. You were in the details. It's called providence. You uh, have created us. Uh, you have created the world. You spoke the world into existence. The galaxies, the stars you know by name, the ocean deeps, and the great creatures of the, of the depths you created. DNA is yours. It's all yours. And the Bible tells us that uh, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He keeps it going. He keeps the law of gravity going. He keeps the rotation of the planets going. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And he, Ephesians 1, 11, um, you work all things after the counsel of your will. Not some things, not the big things. You work all things after the counsel of your will. That, that tells us you are interested in everything that goes on in our lives. Everything. There, there is not a portion of our lives that you are not concerned about or that we cannot bring to you. Uh, there's just so much wrong information out there, and we've heard things all of our lives. Oh, don't bother God with that. He's too busy. That's just foolishness. Uh, you hear the prayers of every person on the face of the earth who cries out to you, and you give your undivided attention to each person, and we cannot fathom how you can do that. But you're God, and we're not. You know all things even before we say things to you. Uh, that's what Jesus told us about prayer. He said, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. But we pray because prayer is, is for us. It's not for you. It's not to dispense information to you. You know our hearts. You know our situations. You know our disappointments. You know our frustrations. You know our fears. You, you know the things that baffle us. You, you know the things that frustrate us. Uh, you know everything. You understand our hearts from afar. You understand us better than we understand ourselves. Uh, some of us, Lord, are, are here tonight, and uh, we've had doctors tell us that we should have been dead a long time ago. There was an accident. There was an event. There was something that occurred. We were quote-unquote terminal, yet here we are. Psalm 68 says, To the Lord belongs escapes from death. That's because you're in the details. You are intimately acquainted, the Bible says, with all my ways. My times are in your hand. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Uh, what a great father you are. Some of us had fathers who were not interested in us. Some of us had fathers who were distant. Some of us had fathers that left us, that abandoned us. Well, that's not you. You came after us. You sought us. You sent your son to die in our place. What a great truth that is. And the more we walk with you and the more we follow Christ, the more we find out about your greatness 
and your faithfulness and your mercy. We're up and down in our faithfulness, but you are faithful all of the time. You never vary. You never waver. What a great God you are. Now, as we come to the end of this study tonight uh, about walking by faith, trusting in you and in your faithfulness to us, help us to apply this truth. Help us to apply it as we go through life this week. We're all facing things we wish we weren't facing. But these different situations are there. This is where we walk by faith, because we can't navigate them, we can't handle them, we can't control them, but you can. And we entrust our souls to a faithful creator when we suffer, who does what is right. So use these truths in Hebrews 11 to strengthen us, to empower us, uh, bring them to our remembrance, Lord, at the time that we need them. Encourage our hearts tonight from your word. Thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That it just cuts through all the nonsense of life. It cuts through the nonsense of our excuses. It's just best if we come clean with you and say we're sinners and we trust in Christ who is our Savior. And we're grateful for forgiveness and mercy. And we say that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, as we are finishing up on Hebrews 11, which we've, if you've been here, you know we have said that uh, Hebrews 11 is God's Hall of Fame because these men that are mentioned and some ladies that are mentioned, at least Rahab is mentioned, uh, in Hebrews 11, were people who walk by faith. Uh, these are people in the Old Testament. Uh, we have, depending on which person it is, we have uh, biographical information on their lives. Some of them, we got a lot of information about them. Some of them, we just have a little bit. But the reason that they're in here is that in their particular situation, they walk by faith trusting in the promises of God and trusting that God would be faithful to them as they called upon Him. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for those who come to Him must believe that He is. That's really fascinating to me because we live in a culture that is pretty much atheistic. Uh, the educational system, the academic world, uh, our government uh, the judicial system, uh, it didn't used to be that way, but it is now, and it's increasing. It's becoming more and more atheistic. And here's the thing. Even if you're not an atheist, but you're a Christian, and you follow Jesus Christ, the thing we have got to watch is we've got to watch ourselves that we don't become uh, what Stephen Charnock used to call practical atheist. You can believe in God, you can believe in Christ, but as you walk through life as a Christian, if you don't watch yourself, it's very easy that in all practicality, in terms of how you go about your life and your attitudes and your outlook on life, that for all intents and purposes, even though you're a Christian, you name the name of Christ, you live like He's not there. 
Now, that's not how you want to do it, because you're missing the benefits of knowing Christ. We live off the promises. For those who come to him, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, uh, believe that he is, must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Um, he is our Father. He is mindful of our situations and what's going on in our lives. Um, he wants to take us from immaturity to maturity. He wants us to grow up in Christ. Uh, Paul said to the church at Corinth, he sh- said, I should be able to give you solid food, but you're still on the Gerbers. You're still on the strained squash. How do those babies eat that crud? You ever, you ever, I'm watching my little granddaughter eating those strained beets or something. Shoot, I won't eat that, and I'm 63. But when you're a baby, you'll eat anything. And you'll buy anything. And you can be swept by every wind of doctrine. See, he wants us to become mature men. He wants us to become men who are strong and solid in our faith. So we're studying the Scriptures. We're attempting to apply the Scriptures, not just be hearers, but be doers. Christian life is a hard life. It is not an easy life. Don't let anybody tell you different. Now, as we finish our study on Hebrews 11, um, I want you to turn with me to um, Hebrews 12. And the reason I want to go to Hebrews 12 is that Hebrews 12, if you're going to finish the study on Hebrews 11, you've got to go to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it really doesn't make any sense. But uh, you know these chapter divisions in your Bible are not in the original text. Uh, they were put there uh, by uh, the, the one in the New Testament. Uh, there was a, a, a man named Stephanus, and, uh, you know, it was hard to find. The re- it was hard to find these books and the references because there were, there, no mar- there were no markers. So he was the guy who attempted to put in chapter visions and number of the little verses and all that. I mean, it was a well-intentioned move. And, uh, but at times, he really, uh, uh, he just flat-out blew it. And this is one of those times where he just flat-out blew it. He would travel a lot from village to village on horseback, and I think this one uh, was kind of at the end of the day. He needed some coffee, uh, probably needed a meal, needed to get some sleep. But he decided to stop Hebrews 11 at um, verse 40. But the problem is, if he hadn't been paying attention, he wouldn't have done that, because just ignore that chapter. Look at verse 40, because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, you see that? Well, therefore, what is a therefore, therefore? A therefore is a summary statement. If you're at the Rotary Club and some guy's making a speech and he's, and he's just boring you to tears, you, you, the thing you're hoping is that you'll hear a therefore. <laughs> because that means he's going to conclude. Or you're, you're hoping someone will say, and in conclusion, you don't cut it off before the therefore. You've got to let the guy finish the thought. So these chapter divisions are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well-meaning men put them in there, and sometimes they didn't get it right. Uh, what I want to do tonight as we finish Hebrews 11 is that I want to start at the conclusion of Hebrews 11. 
And then I want to work our way back. And I think as we do this, you'll see the reasoning behind it. Uh, we have been, we've worked our way all the way up through Hebrews 11, verse 32. Uh, what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And then what he's going to do in the rest of Hebrews 11 is talk about the prophets. He doesn't name them, but he talks about what happened in their lives as they walked by faith. And he gets all the way down to verse 40, and then he makes his conclusion, and let's start there, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. You know, when you study your Bible, context is huge. And a lot of times when you're studying your Bible, and you see something, and you read a verse, and you go, gosh, I wonder what that means. Cloud of witnesses. What does that mean? Well, there, one of the things you want to look at is the immediate context what comes just before and just after. And if you look at the immediate context, what has he been talking about? He's been talking about these men of old. If you look at 11.2, for by it the men of old gained approval. These guys are the cloud of witnesses. They have gone on to their heavenly reward. They're in the presence of the Lord. So when you read 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, um, I think I mentioned last week. See, this is a passage that seems to indicate that those who are in heaven are aware to a degree of what's going on on the earth. You also find that in Revelation. Um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Where those who had been martyred, is it Revelation 4 or 5? I'm doing it off the top, off the top of my head where those who had been martyred for the faith in the last days are crying out to the Lord, when are you going to make things right and justify things on the earth? And the Lord says, I still have those who have yet to be martyred. They were aware of what was going on on the earth to a degree. Now, I could, those are the only two verses I can think of that indicate that. So you don't want to make too much out of it. It doesn't mean that we pray to them. There's, you don't see that in Scripture. You don't pray to those in heaven. You don't pray for those in heaven. There's no reason to pray for them. Uh, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. First Timothy 2. You see? You don't have to go through anybody else. You don't have to pray for those who have departed. You don't need to pray for the dead. You don't need to pray them out of some place to get them to heaven. There's no limbo place. There's no interim place. There's no waiting room. You can't find it in Scripture. You just can't find it. It's not there. There is heaven, Jesus said, and there is hell. Those are the two destinations. That's what the Word of God says. When all else fails, when all else fails, read the directions. Read the book. Read the book. You say, but I was raised with that. Well, we're raised with a lot of things. But we're not immature anymore. We're mature, and we're to be men of the word. The Christians at Berea were more noble than the Christians at Thessalonica because they examined these truths to see if they were so. You see? So we look in the Scripture. Okay, let's go on. Therefore, since we have... He's wrapping up now, Hebrews 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also... Lay aside every encumbrance 
and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, the guys in Hebrews 11, they have run their race, they have finished their race. We're, we're, we've been learning from their example, but now we're still, we're in the race. We're running the race. We haven't finished the race. So let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Uh, we are in a race, and can I say this to you? It's a hard race. It's a difficult race. So how do you know it's a difficult race? Because he says run it with endurance. It's not a sprint. The Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is not a 100-meter, uh, we used to call it 100-yard dash. Now it's the 100-meter, is it dash or dashette? I mean, I don't know what it is. It's something. The 100 meters. Um, the Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a long race. Eugene Peterson wrote a book a number of years ago. It has a great title. And it captures the concept. His, the name of his book was A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I like that. That's the Christian life. Christian life is not brief, it's not short, it's long. And you need endurance. Why do I need endurance? Because it's not a sprint, it's not a short race. You uh, watch the 100 meters in the Summer Olympics every four years, world's fastest men. And it's not unusual to see a false start in a 100-meter race. They're in, the, they're in the starting blocks. They're in there like this, you know, you know, doing that whole thing, popping their necks like I'm doing. Um, it's not unusual to see a false start. Why? Well, it's a short race. And the speed is pretty much the same among those guys. The steroid level is pretty much the same. <laughs> So in order to get any kind of an edge, an advantage, what do you have to do? You've got to anticipate the starter's gun just by a nanosecond and not get caught. But you don't need endurance for 100 meters. No, you need endurance for a marathon. And the Christian life is a marathon. Some of you, you've heard me tell this story. It's a true story. I use it in my book, Finishing Strong. But I had a guy come up to me in Arkansas and uh, years ago, and he came up to me after the morning service, and he knew us from California. He goes, hey, I'm going out to your home, home turf next weekend. I said, oh, really? You going out to California? He goes, yeah. I said, great, what are you doing out there? He said, I'm going out uh, for the Great Western 100. And I said, great, what, what, what is that, a car race? He goes, no, it's a running race. It's an ultra marathon. I said, an ultra marathon? Yeah, I'd never heard of that. I said, what's an ultra marathon? He goes, a 100 mile race. We run 100 miles without stopping. He was serious. I mean, the guy looked normal. <laughs> he was a doctor. He was a physician. I mean, we were in Arkansas, but he was wearing shoes. Uh, he introduced me to his wife, who was a real sweet girl. I mean, his cousin. I mean, I can't remember her name. Jim, you're not laughing. You went to Arkansas. Jim's going to ambush me in the parking lot afterward. No, sharp guy. And this was his hobby. He ran 100-mile races, and there were two guys in the church, and the, the three of them, every 90 days, went on a 100-mile race. I said, what, so what's the Great Western 100? He said, we start on the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe and go up over the Sierras and come down on the California side. And they actually published a little book 
And the cover showed the, one of the guys after a 100-mile race. It was just a shot of, from the ankles down, this guy in his Nikes, after a race. And you could tell the Nikes used to be white, and now they're tinging towards red because of the blood. Uh, they looked like they'd been through a shredder, and the tread was hanging like this. That's what happens when you run 100 miles without stopping. My family can't drive 100 miles <laughs> without stop. And every 90 days, this guy and his two friends would go run a 100-mile race. There's another one in California. Starts in Death Valley. The lowest uh, part of the continental United States. And you run up Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the continental United States. They don't start at the top and go down. Oh, no. They start in the desert, and they go up. Every 90 days, they run a 100-mile race. In order to do that, this guy gets up six days a week and runs 20 miles before breakfast every day, six days out of seven. That's his training schedule. Because you see, if you get up every morning and run 20 miles before breakfast, to run 100 miles every 90 days is doable. My point is this, how do you get endurance to run 100 miles without stopping? You have to choose to suffer before breakfast. He would choose to get up and run 20 miles um, James chapter 1, verse 2, count it joy, my brethren. It doesn't say feel it as joy. Count it, I was talking with a gentleman this week, and his, his wife had recently passed away, and they'd been married almost 50 years. He said, I have a real hard time. That's hard for me, you know. And, and I was just explaining to him, well, the idea, God doesn't expect us to experience that as joy or feel it as joy. That isn't. I mean, he wouldn't do that to you. But see, the, the point is, when we go through hard things at a certain point, we've got to take a step back and say, what's going on here? And so James says, count it as joy. Or some translations say, consider it. See, that's something you do with your mind. When you count, you use your mind, not your emotions. When you consider you use your mind, not your emotions. Consider it joy, or, or think it is joy. Don't feel it as joy. Don't, don't be weird. But think it as joy when you encounter. And notice it doesn't say if you encounter. It says when. Because in the Christian life, adversity and hardship and suffering um, are mandatory. They're not optional. Think it is joy when you encounter various trials. Watch this. Now, why would I think it is joy? Knowing. Knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces endurance. Huh. So how do I get endurance? To finish strong? How do I get endurance? To keep going ahead when I don't feel like going ahead? How do I get endurance 
to continue to be faithful, you get it by going through hard things. And every time we go through something hard or our faith is tested and we see that God comes through and that God makes a way and that God delivers, what it does is it builds our muscle of faith. Uh, When you're running 20 miles before breakfast, uh, that heart, that muscle is in good shape because it's being exercised, is it not? Oh yeah, yeah, that lung capacity is, is incredible. You see, and, and we have that muscle of faith that's, that's got to be worked out. Um, I mean, so, hey, listen, I use these illustrations all the time. And I, some of you guys have heard me use them. But I don't, I mean, they just work. I mean, you go to the gym. Why do you go to a gym? You ever say to your buddy, hey, you want to go down to the gym and work out? You ever say to your buddy, hey, you want to go down to the gym? And suffer? Do you ever say that? No. But what are you going to do at the gym? You're going to suffer. I mean, there are guys who go to the gym because their wives want them to, but they don't do anything. You know, I mean, they get in the jacuzzi, and then when it starts getting too hot, they go sit on the steps of the pool, and then when they get too cold, they get back in the hot water because they don't want to suffer. But that's not much of a workout, is it? You got to suffer. You got to suffer at the gym. Do another set. Do another set. That's really good. Now do another one. Push it. Push it. And the bone comes through the skin. You fracture. Oh, great job. Good workout. (laughs) You know. No pain. No what? in the Christian life. How do you get endurance? By suffering. So let's go back to Hebrews 12. See, Scripture interprets Scripture, doesn't it? Oh, but I have a question for you. Anybody, uh, anybody suffer? Anybody in a hard situation? Anybody in adversity and you're worn out and you're getting tired and you're running out of gas? What's going on there? Well, no. Know what's going on. Your faith is being tested. God's, I mean, it's not that God's not aware. He's very aware, and he's in the details. He's, he's working you out. He is your personal trainer. Because he's got something for you down the road, and you're not quite ready for it, so he's getting that muscle of faith ready for what's out there for the next challenge. Have you ever asked God to use you? Well, then this is the process we go through. It's not going to the spa. It, it's not that. It, it's, it's... I went to a spa once. We went on the cruise with Focus on the Family, and we had some friends. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I've never been to a spa, and they talked me into going to a spa with Mary. And so we all went, and my friend was with his wife, and we walk in, and I, th- I, th- I mean, I felt weird just to begin with. Because they, anyway, and I walked in, and I, it didn't feel right to me. It just, it just wasn't right. Um, and then suddenly Mary's going over there, and I'm going in here, and here comes this little Filipino girl, and she says, take off your bathrobe. 
And I said, uh, I said, what? And she said, take off. Oh, I had, I had a bathing suit on. And she said, I'll be right back. And I'm there, and she said, take off. And you know what? I got up and left. And I mean, we paid some money for that thing. And that was it. I was gone. It just, I, don't know, I thought it was weird. I don't, go into, I don't go into rooms with girls that I'm not married to. Do you? It just made no sense. <sighs> Gosh. Okay. But I bought some um, uh, sugar scrub for my skin. <laughs> and that was, that was neat. It's really helped me. It's not a spa, it's a gym. You're working out. Okay? You're working out. You're sweating. It's hard. You want to quit. You got an ache in your gut. Your knee hurts. Your hamstring is all screwed up. This is the Christian life. And a lot of guys want to quit, and they say, I can't stay in this marriage, and I'm out of here. Well, you said for better or worse. You said richer or poor, sickness and in health. Didn't you? And, and listen, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty here because we have divorced guys here. Uh, some of the most teachable guys I ever meet in my life are guys that have been through the heartbreak of a divorce. And, and, they, and they are so teachable. as Man, did I ever screw up? Well, God bless you for admitting it. Well, I'm remarried. Okay, here you go. Forgetting what life... You can't do a thing about that. But Lord, today, I want to help me to be the man I've never been before in my life. Help me to be that man. Help me to grow. And it's a different woman, but there's different issues. And because see, everyone's got their stuff. Right? So it takes endurance. And they've got to endure us. And we've got to endure them. Because we're people. We're human. Am I making sense? And see, in our culture, everybody leaves. Oh, I'm not happy. Okay, so you're not happy. Who cares? Who cares you're not happy? I mean, I'm not happy about most things. Does that mean you quit? Does that mean you go do something else? I mean, that's, that, this isn't the 60s. This isn't a smoke and pop. Uh, uh, what do they smoke? Um, marijuana. Mar yeah, uh, I can't think of the pot. I'm saying pop, it's not pop. That's outlawed in New York City. I'm thinking of pot. You can smoke pot in New York City. You can't drink pop. That's what it was most confusing me. Because, see, we've lost our minds, have we not? We've just gone crazy. Yeah. So we stick with hard things because we're men who are following Christ. Watch this. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Fixing our eyes on Jesus. You don't focus on anyone else. You don't focus on some preacher or some leader or this guy or that guy. You focus on Jesus because anyone else, if you get close to him for enough time, will disappoint you because we're all flawed men. There's one Savior, and his name is Jesus. He has never disappointed anybody. But men will disappoint because we're just men. All right? He is the author and perfecter of your faith. So Hebrews 11 is all about faith. How do you get faith? Faith is a gift of God. That's how you get faith. Uh, you say, well, I exercise faith. I'm sure you did, but where'd you get the faith to exercise? 
Because you see, Ephesians 2.1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive. You didn't make yourself alive. Dead men can't change their condition. Dead men are lost. Psalm 14, there is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good. God has looked over all the sons of the earth. There is no one who seeks him. Yeah, but at a certain point, I sought him. That's because he sought you. No man can come unless the Father draws him. All that the Father has given me will come, Jesus said. This may not fit your theology, but read your Bible. It's in the Word of God. If God waited for us to come to him, no one would ever come. Jesus said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. So he brings us to Christ. He gives us faith, which we then exercise, but he had to first give it to us because we didn't have it. He regenerates our hearts. We, we see our need of the gospel. Our blind mind, eyes are open. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They may not see the truth of the gospel. So he regenerates our hearts. He opens our eyes. We say, Lord Jesus, and we call out to him as our Savior. We embrace him. Now we're going to follow him. You see, we trust in him alone. We've been born again. And now, once you're born... Once birth, now the whole name of the game is to grow. What did he say to his disciples, to his apostles? You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear what? Fruit, and that your fruit might remain. That's what he's got in store for us. He wants us to bear fruit. Well, how do you bear fruit? Go read John 15. You, you bear fruit. We all want to be fruitful in our lives. You know what's interesting about John 15? Every branch that bears fruit, you know what he does to it? He prunes it so that it might bear more fruit. See, all the way in the Scripture, you see suffering. If, if, if you're a fruit tree and you bear fruit and then the gardener comes along and starts cutting your branches and, and you had emotions and you had feelings, would that not hurt? And would you not say to the vine dresser, what are you doing? Hey, hey, knock that off. What are, you, what are you cutting on me for? Did I not give you fruit? Oh, it was unbelievable. It was wonderful. Well, then why are you cutting me? Ah, oh, because I want more fruit. Isn't it amazing how all these principles speak of the Christian life? You see? Well, it's, 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 man, I don't understand why this is happening. I, I'm trying to follow him. Exactly. You've been fruitful. He wants more fruit. <laughs> we don't want to hear this stuff. But it sure makes sense, and it sure explains things, at least, doesn't it? Huh. And he's not trying to ruin you. He's, he's trying to mature you and make you the man that you want to be. But you go through hard things. Watch this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author. So why, why, am I, why do I have faith in Christ in the first place? He gave it to me. All right. But he doesn't want me just to be a man of faith who was born again. Now he wants me to be a fruitful man. It says we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith. He perfects my faith. You see? He sands it. He prunes it. He... Some translations say 
Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You know what I think about there? I think about a Finnish carpenter. Oh, there's nothing like a good Finnish carpenter. Man, they can take good work, good work, and make it incredible work. Incredible. It's craftsmanship. He is the author of my faith, and then once, what he'll do is, He's going, to, uh, he's going to work on me, and he's going, to, he's, going to finish, he's going to finish me out. When God wants to thrill a man and skill a man and use a man, then watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with every blow fuses him. And I can't remember the rest. You say, who wrote that? We don't know, but it's amazing. It's all about God using a man. And when you really look at it, it's, it's about the pain and the trials I remember one of the worst mornings of my life, over 30 years ago, in the depths of depression, picking up a little thing called the hammer, the file, and the furnace that Chuck had written. And I was just getting the crud beat out of me. And it hurt. And I read that little thing and it gave me hope that there was a reason I was getting pounded and filed and thrown in the furnace because he wanted to refine me, refine me. It's like gold, you put that gold in that furnace and it's red hot and you refine that gold, you see. That's a process we go through when we follow Christ. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You guys, you still here? You still for the Christian life? <laughs> Isn't it something? Because you, you watch these guys on Christian television just spouting all of their nonsense. You know. And there's so much nonsense. It's not biblical. And it sounds good. And everybody gets pumped up and everybody's hanging yeah. I mean, if you made that kind of money and flew around in a private jet, you'd be smiling too. You know what I mean? Had that kind of life. Christian life is hard. There's a place called heaven. This isn't it. We're on our way. What we're going through is hard, but you see, you've got to take a step back and look at the whole perspective because uh, our life on earth is a, is a wisp. It's just a, and it's gone, in light of eternity. That's why this, this is called, Paul said, this, we're in this momentary light affliction. See, there's going to be a day. I'm telling you, Christ is coming back. We don't know when he's coming back, but he's coming. 
He's going to set everything right. He's going to rule and reign from the new Jerusalem. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. We'll be there with him. There'll be no pain. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no no Alzheimer's. There'll be no leukemia. There'll be no broken homes. There'll, There'll be no counseling. There'll be no need for it. There'll be no alcoholism. All the things in life that are hard and difficult and break our hearts and break our relationships, it's all going to be gone forever, forever. But in the interim, we're here and we're facing what's ahead of us. But as the old Puritan pastor said, you've got to keep one eye right in front of you as you walk through life and you've got to keep one eye on heaven so you don't lose hope. This isn't going to last forever. There's an end to the hard race. Okay? Jesus is the author of my faith, and he is the perfecter and the finisher of my faith, who for the joy before him, set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what did Jesus do? Jesus, who was God, who created the worlds, who spoke it into existence... He came, was born of a virgin. The eternally pre-existent God was born of a woman who he created under the stars that he created. It's wild. It's just wild. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took my sin and your sin upon him. He who was without sin went to the cross took our sin by his blood, paid for our sin without the shedding of blood. There's no remission of sin. He satisfied the wrath of the Father, which should have come upon you and me, but he took it on him. He he took our shame. He was humiliated. But he bore it. He was buried. He rose on the third day. Then he ascended to the Father. And as it says here, he's at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Isn't that what it says in 12.2? Then he he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, My question is, what is he doing at the right hand of God? Well, if you look at Hebrews 7.25, we find out what he's doing. Hebrews 7.25 says he lives forever to make intercession for the saints, for the Christians. Romans 8.34 says he is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. You you know, Scripture interprets Scripture, so he's at the right hand of the Father. But what is he doing at the right hand of the Father as we're walking through life? As we walk through life and are facing these different challenges, he prays for you and he prays for me. He prays for us. Is that not amazing? He is praying for us. And then in Romans 8, uh, it says, it talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also prays for us. It says, we do not know how to pray as we should. You ever not sure sometimes what to say? Well, join the club. That's okay. You just say, Lord, I'm not even sure what to pray here. Just tell him. Just tell him. I'm in your hands. If you've if you got nothing else, just say, Father, I'm in your hands. I'm all in. I trust you with my life. I don't even know what to pray for. I'm that confused. That's okay. We don't know how, we do not know now how to pray as we should, Romans 8 says. Somewhere in the 30s in, in Romans 8. 
maybe the late 20s. I can't remember. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings too deep for words. So you stop and think about this. Jesus, is, as we're running the race, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's praying for me, and the Holy Spirit is praying for me. That's unbelievable. He prays for us. He's for you. A lot of times we think he's against us. He's not against you. He's for you. He died for you. You're his son. Psalm 56, 9. This I know that God is for me. Oh, but I'm always screwing up. He knows that. He knows that. That's because of Romans 7. You're still struggling with sin. He knows that. But Romans 8 says there's no condemnation, therefore, to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, he knows our struggle. Our salvation is not dependent upon us and our perfection and our righteousness. It's dependent on his. Right? And he'll give you what you need to finish. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. He'll do it. It's on him. Deuteronomy 1, he says, I carried you like a father carries a little boy. He'll just pick you up and carry you. That's how great of a father, that's how great of a God he is. Now let's go to Hebrews 11. Okay? You guys still there? Or you need to get home and watch... um, Whatever you watch, I don't know. Um, Hebrews 11. Okay, now I want to show you something in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, he's now going to talk about the prophets. He doesn't name them by name. But what we're going to see in the first, as we begin to read Hebrews 11.32, he's going to talk about some of the great things that God did for the prophets, some of the good things that God did for the prophets. And then what he's going to do is he's going to talk about some of the bad things that happened to the prophets. Because you see, in the Christian life, you got both. Um, In 1663, Thomas Watson wrote a book called All Things for Good. It's based on Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say say that God says all things are good, because some things are not good. Uh, Rape is not good. Murder is not good. Bankruptcy is not good. Uh, Betrayal is not good. Uh, There are all kinds of horrible, terrible, horrific things that happen to people because we live in a sin-filled world. And, and there is a fallen, rebellious angel who took a third of the angels with him when he fell from heaven. Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, who is insane. And he makes war against the saints. Terrible, 
horrific things happen. Uh, but watch this. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work. Watch this. God causes all things to work, to fit, to become congruent. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So those who are elect from eternity to know Christ, those who are born again, those who have been regenerated by the Spirit, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. So when we come to know Christ, we're in his family, we're in that covenant, we're in the new covenant. And what God does is, he doesn't, he, he doesn't, there is not an ironclad promise that bad things won't happen to us. Bad things happen to Joseph. Evil happened to Joseph, did it not? His brothers sold him into slavery at the age of 17. Years later, his brothers are afraid now that he's the most powerful man on the earth, that he's going to get back at them because the father has died. Now they're afraid. And Joseph said to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good in order to bring about this present result. Joseph was not a victim. Joseph was a victor because he saw God in his circumstances. And, he, and here's the thing, guys. Everybody in here has a story. Everybody has a history. In the quietness of your heart, there is something each guy has in here. It is the worst thing that ever happened to you. It is the single most horrific experience of your life. It's the greatest tragedy of your life. Whatever, it's different for every guy. Now, here's the deal with God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. You say, Steve, I haven't seen it yet. Well, you're going to have to walk by faith that he's going to fulfill that promise. He doesn't say when. He doesn't say how. That's why so often in the scriptures you'll see the word wait. 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 God's all about perfect timing. He knows what he's doing when it comes to timing. He invented it. He knows what he's doing. So you wait on him for his timing. Okay, well, my reputation's just been drawn through the mud. All right, then you wait on him. You wait on him. He knows all about that. That's who he is. That's what he does. So Thomas Watson, in 1663, writes this book, All Things for Good. Now, why did he write it in 1663? He wrote this book to pastors in England because in 1662, you see, all the pastors in England were part of the state church. And because of the politics at the highest levels, they got upset with the guys who just wanted to teach the Bible. The guys that just taught the Word of God and didn't sign off on the religious bureaucracy or the policies that were being made. Oh, we're going to incorporate this worship scheme, or we're going to do this, and those guys say, no, we're just going with the Word of God. If it's not in the Word of God, we're not doing it. Well, those guys are problems. See, you, you, you hold to the Word of God, you're a problem. We can't have that. That doesn't work. That's not inclusive enough. You know, in Canada this week, Supreme Court of Canada just pretty much outlawed religious freedom in Canada. 
uh, if you want to go to the Gospel, the Gospel Coalition website, you can read the article on what the Supreme Court of Canada did. Basically, pastors cannot speak out in any kind of way that would make a judgment, a moral judgment on homosexuality. If you do, now it's, uh, you very well could wind up in jail. And we're right behind them. It's coming. You can see it, can you not? You know it's coming. What happened in 1662? All of the pastors who stood for the word of God and would not violate their consciences were put out of their churches. Therefore, they lost their salaries. They lost their manses, their homes, which were paid for by the state. Um, they were forbidden to go within five miles of a church, and they were forbidden to ever preach again. And, and so they lost their living, they lost their ministries, and many of them wound up in prison, and many of them died in debtor's prison. And to those men who had lost everything, being faithful for the gospel, Thomas Watson wrote a book to them, All Things for Good, to remind them of Romans 8.28. Chapter 1 says this. Here's the title of chapter 1. The best things work for the godly. The best things work for good for the godly. See, we like, we like the best things. We like it when we get a promotion. We like it when that deal comes through. We like it when our marriages are happy and solid. We like it when our kids are doing well. We like it when everything... We just like it when things are good. Sure we do. And has not God blessed us? And has not God done much good to us and given us much mercy? Yes. See, the best things work for good to the godly. God has given you many best and good things. They work for the godly. You know what chapter 2 is? The worst things work for the good of the godly. Oh, by the way, that chapter, the worst things work for good to the godly, is twice as long as the first chapter. Because we got a lot more questions about chapter 2 than we do chapter 1. We don't have to be convinced about the good things working for good, but we sure got to be convinced about the worst things working for good. Do we not? Because we don't want the worst things. It doesn't make sense. Watch these guys in Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11 get the good things and then watch them get the worst things. You ready? Hebrews 11.32. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. He doesn't mention them by name. And the prophets, who by faith, now here are the good things, who by faith conquered kingdoms. Ah, oh, that's a good thing. Performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. That's got to be Daniel, right? Absolutely. Uh, uh, Samson also. Uh, David also shut the mouths of lions. Quenched the power of fire. Gosh, who would that be? Probably Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They heated it up seven times, and the guards were killed. They walked in. They didn't even have a smell of smoke. Their hair wasn't even singed. Nebuchadnezzar says, I thought we put three men in there. Yeah, we did. Well, I see four, and the fourth has the appearance as a son of God. Yeah, well, that's because that's Jesus who runs the whole world. And he says, come out of there. <laughs> Is that good or what? Didn't get any better than that. See, this is the good stuff. 
They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. This is all in the Old Testament. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Remember, uh, uh, Elisha spoke up against Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked king and queen. He said it won't rain for three and a half years until God says it will rain because they thought Baal controlled the rain and the environment. No, God, Yahweh, controls it. And so when he told them that, he had to run for his life, and he goes to the brook at Kidron, and he's hiding out, and he's got no means of support, and there's a manhunt out for him, and, and he survives by drinking from the, the brook, and then God uses the ravens to bring food to him, which is ironic because ravens are notorious as the birds that won't even feed their own young. Notorious. So God uses the least likely candidates to take care of his, his prophet. And then one day the brook dries up. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? See, one day your brook dries up. Your cash flow dries up. Oh, what are you going to do? Well, now God's got to come through for you again. So the Lord says, go up to this widow at Zarephath. And he's thinking, oh, she must be some rich widow. Her husband was in oil and gas, and she's got a foundation. And she's probably got a, a, you know, a nice suite of rooms. And he goes up there, which is in the middle of Baal territory, by the way. It made no sense. But he goes up there, and he sees her, and she's slapping together a tortilla and making a burrito or something. And he says, hey, can I have some of that? And she says, well, I was, this is all I got left. I was going to make this for my son and myself, and we were going to eat it and die. He said, oh, would you give it to me? And she gave it to him. And they were in the midst of a famine and a drought. And because she did that, Elisha said, your oil and your flour will never, ever run empty. And she looked, and up the highway came all these 18-wheeler trucks <laughs> full of flour and cooking oil, Wesson oil, canola oil. It was unbelievable. And they had to build warehouses so that they could store everything. Is that what happened? No. No, no. What happened was every time she'd go in that flour bin, whatever she needed was there. Every time she went in to dip for that oil, uh, it was there. Sort of like Jesus feeding the 5,000. He had those fish. What do you have? What was it? Seven loaves, 12 fishes, or the reverse? I can't remember. And he starts passing, I got 5,000. He starts passing out, you know, chunks of fish. Here, take that, that, that. And every time he'd pass, he'd take one, not, nothing was depleted. Here, take this bread. Here, take, take that piece. Take that piece. And he, it, just never, it just never diminished. In fact, at the end, there were 12 baskets full they collected. That's what the Lord did for the widow at Zarephath. And then later what happened that was that her son died, and Elijah comes, and what does Elijah do? That kid is raised from the dead. Amazing victory. Amazing. Now, he died again. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died. Right? There'll be a day when there is no more death. You guys still with me? So you're a little worried about your cash flow? Oh, my cash flow is dried up. That's not a problem for God. George Mueller used to say, God is my banker. God's got credit lines you don't know a thing about. God's got resources you don't know a thing about. So don't get too freaked out. You live off the promises of God. You do your work. You do what you're supposed to do. He's got your back. He's your banker. This is good stuff. Is it not? Would you not agree? All right. But now we're going to get into the bad stuff.
Watch this, because this happens. 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. And now there's a shift. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. You got a 32-year-old American-Iranian pastor being held in the worst jail in Iran right now, being tortured to death, and he won't recant his faith in Christ. He's got a wife and two little kids. This still goes on in the world, guys. Whenever I, whenever I think of him, I immediately pray for him and his wife. Can't even imagine what that would be like. He may very well die in that prison. Well, he won't be the first to have died in a prison who wasn't set free and who wasn't delivered. 36, others experienced mockings, scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Christian tradition, Jewish tradition, tells us that King Manasseh, wicked King Manasseh, took Isaiah the prophet because he was sick and tired of hearing him preach the word of God, and he put him in a hollowed-out log and cut him in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. Um, there's a little book you can buy called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And John Fox did a history of the Christian church and all those who were martyred for the faith, all those who were burned at the stake. You go to Oxford, England, and you're walking down one of the streets, and there's bed and bath and beyond. And, you know, all the chains have come into Oxford. I mean, it's just it's tragic. But you got all these chains, you know, Banana Republic, I mean, in Oxford. And I'm looking over this street where... Uh, Hugh Latimer, and who was the other guy? I can't, I'm blanking. We're martyred. We're burned to the stake. And I, I can't find it. Stu Weber told me there's a marker on the street, and I walk into Bed Bath and Beyond. And I said, hey, is there a marker somewhere on these two guys who were burned at the stake? He goes right out in front of the store. I said, really? You can't miss it. Well, I missed it three times. It's just right out in front of the store, walk into the middle of the street, and, it's right, and I finally found it. It was just a little... Circle, and it had right there, on this date, in 15, da da da, Hugh Latimer, and I forget the other guy's name, um, were burned at the stake for their faith in Christ. And Latimer said to the other guy, and I'm blanking on his name, he said, play the man, for we shall light a flame that shall spread the gospel throughout England, and they did. And God gave them grace. There, there was another guy, uh, and I'm blanking on his name. I'm blanking on everybody's names tonight. I'm blanking on my own name tonight, who was such a powerful preacher of the gospel. He was so powerful that when they took him to be burned at the stake, they put a thumb screw on his tongue and tightened it so that he couldn't speak, so that he couldn't preach, and people wouldn't come to know Christ as he was being consumed in the flames. But he died in flames. Oh, by the way, John Fox said the blood of the martyrs is seed. Why do they kill martyrs? We're going we're gonna to eradicate Christianity. Uh, hey, let me tell you something. You, you kill Christian people, and you're just spreading the seed, man. Yeah. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. 
And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every temptation, every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You say, man, I could never go through that, Steve. Listen, whatever it is you need to go through, you think right now, I couldn't go through that. You don't need to go through it. I don't have the strength to go through it. You wouldn't need the strength to go through it if you're not there yet. But if you ever get there, he'll give you the strength. That's what he does. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. He will give you what you need when you need it. That's what he does. So don't worry about it, and don't stay up late tonight thinking about it. Just eat some bluebell and go to sleep. <laughs> I love it that he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's going to finish it out. And he's that finished carpenter. He knows what he's doing. And you know what? When we finish, we're promoted. Is that not great? It, it, I, years ago in Missouri, I was doing a conference, and at a certain point, we did a question and answer. And a guy was sitting over here, and we were handing the mic, and he was weeping, and he said, I, I was very close to my two sisters, and several years ago, that my sisters, this guy was 50 maybe, my, my older sisters, my two older sisters got cancer in the same year. And we prayed that God would heal my sisters. And, you know, he was just weeping as he told this story. And he said, um, in the last 90 days, both my sisters died of cancer. And I don't understand why God would not answer my prayer to heal them. See, they died without the promise. And I said to him, I said, I want to say this kindly to you, but I want to say it to you. Um, You, and I get from how you're saying this that you're disappointed with God that he didn't heal your sisters. He goes, yes. Yes, I am disappointed that God did not heal my sisters. I said, God did heal your sisters. He just didn't do it the way you wanted him to. And, and what I hear is that you and your sisters are very close and obviously you had a wonderful family and that's something to be grieved because you're not with him now. But let me tell you, man, your sisters would not want to come back. Your sisters are doing great. And there's no pain and there's no suffering. I said, do you know the Lord? He goes, oh, yeah. I said, you know what's great? You're going to go beat them. You're going to be with them forever. See, even when the worst happens and you take your last breath, and even if that promise hasn't been fulfilled, the moment you take your last breath, the promise is fulfilled. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth. Thank you that Jesus conquered death. Thank you that when we suffer, we don't suffer randomly, just the luck of the draw. 
Whenever we suffer as Christians, you have a purpose. You have something you're up to in our lives. Oftentimes, we don't see what the purpose is. All we know is, is that it's so painful, and we're so tired, and we're fatigued, and we're exhausted. But, Lord, you don't allow suffering to go on forever. There are seasons of suffering, and then you relieve us of the suffering, and we move to the next chapter of life because we've been prepared and we've learned lessons. And if for some reason, I remember talking to Lance so many years ago in that hospital ward, and he was just down to nothing. He was a shell of who he was. And we were talking, and he knew death was imminent. And I remember just talking to him, this young guy. And I said, Lance, are you, you kind of afraid? And he goes, oh, you know, he kind of gave me that little thing with his hand a little bit. I said, well, that's, that's normal, man. I said, you know, Lance, what's great? You're about to have the greatest thrill of your life. You're actually going to be with Jesus. And all this is going to be over. And he's with you, Lord. And it's all over. The suffering, the pain. Thank you that you have closed this behind and before. We're sticking with you. We believe in you. We trust in you. Whatever's ahead of us, Lord, whatever we're dealing with, we entrust it to you. Give us wisdom to walk wisely and carefully and trust you. We're all in with you because you're all in with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.